Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you please open up your Bibles to Psalm 90. As I said last week, this is a psalm that we always read in connection with the death of a saint, of a child of God. It's a prayer of Moses. So let us hear the word of the Lord as it's found in the book of Psalms, the 90th. The attribution, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be, and be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad. According to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Now last week, most of you weren't here. Um... And so I suppose I could preach against racism again. But now we have a certain man here, and I wouldn't want to do that. He'd get embarrassed. Actually, two now. And so I'll skip over racism this week and move on to uh, the text proper. But last week we spoke of racism because if you want to understand the psalm, you need to know that it, who Moses is. And this is because this psalm is specifically marked at the top as a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And what we said last week is it's very important for you to know that uh, Moses was married to an African, not an African-American, but an African, a Cushite woman. And uh, that part of what Moses suffered in his life and the occasion of God giving some of the most wonderful statements about his character was when Moses' brother and sister um, attacked him. And their real reason for attacking him was because he was married to an African. But they, they didn't acknowledge the real reason. And so racism is always with us. Anybody that thinks they're not a racist is an idiot. They have no self-knowledge. The only question is which race you most dislike. You go to Africa, Africans are racist, and you know who they can't stand? They can't stand Indians. All right? I've seen it. (laughs) And so Moses demonstrated 
unbelievable meekness in the conflict with Miriam, his sister, and Aaron, his brother, when they were oppressing him and dissing him for being married to an African woman. And what the Bible tells us in that context is that Moses, first of all, that he was an advocate for Miriam when she got leprosy as God's judgment, that he immediately wanted to take away the opprobrium of leprosy, you know, unclean, unclean, out of the village, just completely verboten. But that Moses also, um, the Bible tells us, knew he, he was not like former prophets who God would speak indirectly with, but the Bible tells us that God would speak to Moses face to face that God had a direct relationship with Moses. Unbelievable thing to be said. And so when the Bible tells us at the beginning that this is a prayer of Moses, we need to know the character of Moses. The meekest man who was living at the time. Now, today when you hear that, um, you could be very, very easily misled by the statement of meekness. Um, because you could think that what meekness is, is meekness is simply to be a postmodern man, and that means weakness. Meekness, weakness. They, you know, they rhyme. And weakness is in vogue today. It's real chic. It's real cool. It's hip. Um, I want to read to you what I actually wrote about this because I thought carefully about it, but I have to get deep into my manuscript to find it. Aren't you happy? I'm passing tons of pages by. <laughs> Okay, so here's what I wrote about this. What higher commendation could there be indicating the godliness of a man but that he's meek? But some today, in a day when the weakness of men has been lifted up as an honorable thing, today when weakness of men is honorable, supposedly, when victimhood is the highest status that any man can attain... All right. And when victimhood will assure a man of the love and approval of women and the perpetual provision of the state, are you all with me? If you're not with me, you know nothing about the culture that you live in. Today, Woody Allen gets all the women. Days past, John Wayne got them. And maybe Jack Nicholson. You see how we've changed, you know? We have limp-wristed, weak victims who are the heroes of our culture. And so today, when we hear that Mo Moses was the meekest man who lived, we transpose meekness to weakness to humility, which isn't humility, it's arrogance today and limp-wristedness, and lack of direction, and lack of forthrightness, and all those traits that everybody loves today. And then we think, well, Moses must have been a postmodern man. But what we forget is that the Bible tells us that the man who rules his spirit is greater than the man that takes a city. Okay? And so when Moses was offended, when his wife was offended, which should usually elicit even more of a hostile response from a man than when he's insulted, Moses was very, very calm and trusting of God to deal with it and did not deal with it himself. And so if you want to understand the character of Moses, what you need to think about is how often you honk your horn. Right? And you need to think that maybe honking your horn isn't being meek. Now, I, when I honk the horn, I'm, I'm being meek. Because I'm not trying to take vengeance on anybody. I'm trying to teach people how to go through a roundabout. Now, I'm being facetious, which I'm being sort of ironic, I'm, I'm teasing you, but if you don't think about something like your horn, your mouth, the way you stand and face people and the expressions on your face, 
If you don't think about tangible things, you have no clue whether or not you have any of the character of meekness that Moses had. Meekness is not a hypothetical construct. Meekness is knowing that God has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And therefore, not responding in kind, not thinking that if you don't defend yourself, there's nobody else who's going to do it. This is Moses, all right? Beautiful man. Psalm 90 is attributed to this same Moses. And he is called in the attribution what? Just off the top of your head, what? A man of God. What a beautiful thing to be said about a man. He's a man of God. Some people will say that about preachers, but it's, it's baloney. A man being a preacher doesn't make him a man of God. As a matter of fact, it only ups the ante on the man. It gives him nothing in terms of being a man of God. It just makes it ever so much more important whether or not he is. Because if he's corrupt, he corrupts many, right? What is a man of God? Well, a man of God is not being a man's man. You know, I noticed this morning that somebody else had grown a beard, and I thought, man, everybody in this church has a beard. And then I noticed Wayne Hook doesn't have a beard, and so I thought to myself, well, Wayne Hook obviously isn't a man's man. (laughs) Wayne Hook obviously is a very weak individual. It's a joke. Anybody married to Joyce is a man. (laughs) Has to be a man right? But you think about beards, clothing, cars. My son Taylor tells me that the Honda Fit is gay. And I care what my son thinks about my car. But I tell him when he steps on the gas and I step on the gas, I might be behind him a little, but I've only used a quarter of a gallon and he's used three gallons. And you think about all the pecking orders we have. What kind of car you drive, what restaurant you eat at, what home you live in, how you dress. All these things are ways that we indicate what we care about in life. All right? And so I ask you, are you a man's man or are you a man of God? Are you a man of man or are you a man of God? Now, what about women? Well, typically women compete through their children or their husband. And so we've had a woman in our church who was just livid that her husband had not been made an elder and she ended up alienating her family from this church and taking them out. And they all followed her, including her husband, which is why he wasn't an elder. And so, as a woman, are you a woman of God, or are you a woman's woman? You know, when women come into your house, they always feel inferior because of how clean it is and what, a, what an excellent menu you've selected and how well you've pulled it off, which, of course, kills Christian hospitality. You a woman's woman? Or are you a woman of God? Another way of telling who you are is to look at your depressions. What do you get depressed about? That's an indication of what your gods are. Last night I was watching the game. And I want publicly to confess that I now have some affection for uh, the man I used to call Darth Hoodie, uh, Bill Belichick. Um, I saw an interview between him and Bill Cowher, and I really was taken with the man. But as the game went on, and the Colts were doing worse and worse, I found myself getting depressed. Mary Lee came in, and she said, why don't you just turn it off? It's just going to discourage you. What do you get depressed about? Are you an NFL man, or are you God's man? man of God. You say, well, we can be both. And I say, well, do you get depressed when your heart is not in worship? 
No. You should. What do you get depressed about? You get depressed when you don't have your wife's approval or when you don't have God's approval? You get depressed over your sins, you get depressed over your poverty. You get this depressed over being misunderstood by others? God doesn't misunderstand you. Moses, what? A prayer of Moses, what? The man of God. Not a union man, not UAW. <laughs> She's Rachel meet Mrs. Miss or Ms. Taylor, and Ms. Taylor meet Rachel. Her husband just died. He was a lifelong UAW member. That's how I process that. Yes, yes, that's true. That's exactly what you just said. That's funny. Yeah, she says that union is actually a generational thing. And that's absolutely true. Now, who are you? <laughs> I won't sing it, okay? Some of you that know the who will be thankful. <laughs> who are you? <laughs> Tell me who are you? Are you a man of God? Are you a son of God? Are you a daughter of God? Are you a woman of God? Or are you a woman of Tim Bailey? A daughter of Tim Bailey? We don't need that. How often parents are the obstacle between their children becoming men and women of God. I see it all the time. Moses what? A prayer of Moses what? A man of God. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And so this is the first verse, and right away out of the gate, we have a problem because we're Americans. What's the problem? Well, one of the problems is the word Lord. We're inoculated against any acknowledgement of inferiority or subordinate status in America. You know, we think that we have a constitutional right to never say Lord to nobody, no how, and never. Right? And so that's the first problem, Lord. It, it sort of rolls off our tongue, and that means I think that it's not translated. <laughs> you know, if a word rolls off our tongue that we say to God all the time, it's probably not a good translation. So maybe we should say, well... You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, this is the second problem because we as Americans have been deeply inoculated with, uh, with the uh, serum against corporate identity. We are absolutely opposed to federal heads or to any identification that's separate from our individuality. In other words, to be an American is to be an individual. If you want to understand something about corporate identity, get to know Asians. Because in their culture, corporate identity and solidarity is still there, right? So what Moses does right at the very beginning is he signs his submission and the rigid vertical hierarchy of a subordinate of God and that God is his master, all right, his owner, all right? And then he says, look back at the past generations of my ancestors. You have had loving kindness toward them. They have followed you. Look at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm going to run through all the generations leading up to me to remind you that you have an obligation to me, you have an obligation to us as the people of God that is connected from generation to generation to generation to generation going back. I stand here in the phalanx of individual fathers, mothers in Israel. You have been our God through all generations. And so what is he saying to God? Well, what he's saying is, you can't break my lineage. You can't just cut me off. You can't cut us off as the people of God. 
you must be faithful to, to a thousand generations. And I stand in that line, and because of my father and grandfather and great-great-grandfather, great-great-great-great-grandfather. Now, some of you are sitting there going, well, but my father didn't follow God. And so I don't have that claim. And I say, okay, how many generations have to be broken before you can claim the people of God? Say, one? So just one godless father and you no longer have a godly heritage? And you say, well, my heritage goes back thousands of generations of godlessness. I come from a land that never knew God. And I say to you, so are you an adopted son of God or not? And you say, well, yes, by faith I am. And then I say, so all these generations belong to you. You point back and you say, they are my fathers and mothers in the faith. Right? You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Our. First person. Our. Our dwelling place. In all generations. Get it out of your mind that you stand before God as an individual. It's true. It's not true. And thank God it's not true. Thank God that you're a part of this congregation of godly people. And that when you're weak, they're strong. Thank God that you can pray to God and ask God to be merciful to you for the sake of the reputation of Clear Note Church Bloomington. Thank God that I have you ramming a stiff rod up my back as I lead and as I preach. Imagine where I would be if I had not had Evelyn Jarrett resigning as a woman elder at my church, giving me repentance. You remember her story, right? And if you don't, I'm sorry. Imagine if I had not had Don Jarrett. Imagine if I didn't have David Canfield. Imagine if I didn't have Debbie. I mean, I could go around the congregation. We are the people of God. It is our. It is not me and mine. And you better start thinking this way if you're going to be a Christian because Scripture's full of it. Uh, Josh Congrove gave a devotional at the elders meeting this week on the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew. And he talked about the significance of Scripture recording the generations that led up to the birth of our Savior. Get American political theory out of your brain. Get Baptist stuff out of your brain. God is pleased to work through what? Adam, our federal head, through your husband, your federal head, through your father, your federal, through a king, God is pleased to work corporately. That is his habit. All right. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. Now, the one that's easy for us to get out of this verse is from everlasting to everlasting you are God, right? We're okay with that. God is eternal and man is finite. It's a basic condition. We know that we were conceived. We know that we will die. And we know that God had no beginning and has no end. He's eternal. And this is just basic truths of what it means to be religious. That God is not man. That God is infinite, right? And so we don't really have a problem with that. But look earlier in the verse, it says, before the mountains were born, or who gave birth to the earth and the world? God. And we, we have a little more problem with that. Because, of course, this is a book that was written in, in come on, give me the word, the pejorative that we all love to use when we're being condescending but want to hide it, be sneaky. Ancient. The Bible was written in an ancient patriarchal world. The Bible was written at a time, a long time ago, when, when men thought of the world as, when men thought of lightning as being God's, when men thought, when men thought earth, when men thought Death, when men thought, but now living in a post 
enlightenment world where we have referee journals where scholars give us wisdom, scholars who deny the existence of God and therefore scripture says are fools, we don't talk this way anymore. We talk as if we have made ourselves and it is not he who hath made us. And so we read over something like this and we have this ability to live in a, in, 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 in a very weird, twisted duality where we have one way of thinking when we're around scientists and another way of thinking when we're around Christians. And so this is a Christian time and we're reading the Christian book and so we read before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world and it sounds like it's sort of an ancient patriarchal text and we'll cut it some slack. After all, it doesn't live in the post-enlightenment age. But listen, when the Bible says that God was our dwelling place before the mountains were born before he gave birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting back. The Bible is not speaking metaphorically. It's not speaking a spiritual truth that just makes us feel good Sunday morning. The Bible is speaking to the paleontologist, the language that he understands before, before, before there were any fossils, before the mountains even rose, before the world and the universe existed, God is our God. Now, do you think scientists know that? Now, I'm speaking about atheist science. This is some weird thing that to be a scientist, most of them think that they have to deny God. I don't know what that is, but it, it seems to be true. So like if somebody says they're an evolutionist, what they usually mean is not uh, that they believe in anything approximating theistic creation or original design or anything intelligent design. What they usually mean is that they deny the existence of God and his agency in creating the world. All right, just look at statistics and surveys. That's what they say. Now, what is it that causes us to be so damned stubborn in refusing to acknowledge that God made the world. What is it? Well, it's very simple, and Scripture names the disease. If you look at Romans chapter 1, it says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Okay, clearly seen. Now, when it says that they're clearly seen, who is it that's seeing them? If they're clearly seen, who's seeing them? Are you seeing them? Do you see God's power? Do you see it? Come on, tell me. Don't worry about that thing. It's just always ha hassling us, and we get used to it. It's saying that, the pump that, or the grinder outside of the door there is, so nothing's going to happen. It's not a fire alarm. Very good. Who was the successful one? Whoever ran out front, right? <laughs> yeah, David's the successful one, he says. So when the Bible says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Who is clearly seeing it? Me, believers, everybody. And that's the little game that you have to keep your eye on the ball in, is that you will easily fall into a sort of personal spirituality view of truth, where you will not hold men accountable for what they see, and therefore you'll participate in their lives. Do you understand that? So they'll say, well, I don't see it. And you'll say, well, I know. But you shouldn't. Because they're lying. 
And you say, well, how do you know they're lying? And I say, because it says right here, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So in other words, it's not understood through scripture. It's understood through nature. And isn't this what scientists tell us they're looking at? And then you say, well, yeah, but they tell us they don't see it. I said, well, of course they tell you they don't see it. What do you expect them to do? Their whole life is built on foolishness. So you think they're going to get wise when it comes to speaking to you? No, they're going to lie. Being understood through what has been made so that they are what? Without excuse. For even though they knew God, who is it speaking of? Christians? Jews? Muslims? Everybody. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. (laughs) And that's the real issue. It is so hard to give thanks to God. It's so hard to admit that it is he who hath made us and not we ourselves. Giving thanks is an act of faith. Giving thanks is an act of humility. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. This is the true condition of atheist scientists, the true condition of atheist philosophers. They are futile in their speculations and their hearts are foolish and darkened. They may parade in an academic procession and they may have the most splendid hood there. They may have multiple terminal degrees in different disciplines. They're vain in their speculations. They're futile, they're foolish, they're darkened. And you are incapable of loving an academic until you start there. If you start wanting to have them think that you think they're something, if you start wanting to pay lip service to their foolishness by saying that really until God opens their eyes they can't know of the existence or power of God it's completely bogus you don't love academics you're an anti-intellectual now some of you should be laughing (laughs) because of course they would say that an anti-intellectual is a very person who would force them to admit the truth Because that person would require them to alienate themselves from their life's work. And so that's an anti-intellectual. Anybody that would say to them, admit that your mind is darkened. Admit that your speculations are foolish. No, you're an anti-intellectual. No, no, no. An anti-intellectual is somebody who refuses to love a sinner and to build on the truth about that sinner that God has told you, has revealed to you in his word. Does that make sense to you? It's absolutely essential that you not blip over verse 1, verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God gave birth to the earth and the world. It did not give birth to itself. And any effort we have to speak of it in such a way as to remove the agency of God is a betrayal of God, a betrayal of his word, and a betrayal of the very souls that you're claiming to love by talking in such a way. (laughs) Right? Now, it's hard. I know it's hard. And you have to study how to do it in such a way that it's not needlessly offensive. But... You have to do it. When you're talking with somebody who's on the appellate court, those of you who are here in Sunday school, 
And that appellate court person has just carefully modulated their jurisprudence in such a way as to commend sodomite marriage. You know they know that they are hostile to God because nature reveals it. And you can't go along to get along. That's not the way of Christ. You can't be censorious. You can't be belligerent. You can't be nasty. But you have to love. And you can't love and deny the truth. All right. You turn man back into dust. Now Moses here is speaking generically. He's speaking about man in general. Man is turned back into dust. And so when we stand at the graveside, we repeat, most of us repeat the words that have come down for a century, I mean, for many centuries from Cranmer, the prayer book. Um, In the midst of life, we live in death, but who must we seek for relief? But of thou, O Lord, who for our sins are justly displeased. Okay? And you hear those words in Psalm 90. And we commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So what this scripture reveals to us is that God himself is the one who returns us to the dust. You turn man back into dust. God is the one that is in charge of life and death. And it is when he says, return, O children of men, that we turn back into dust. And then, having noted the terminus, the the finiteness of man, he then returns to God and says, God is eternal. A thousand years in his sight are like yesterday when it passes or is a watch in the night. A watch in the night is three hours. So a thousand years is like 24 hours or three hours. So God's eternal, but we are not. We die and he returns us to dust. When he speaks, we die. Okay? You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. And so again, God's agency. God is the one that gives us beauty of youth. God is the one that gives us feebleness of old age. God is the one that returns us to dust. God is the one that gives us conception. All our days are in his hands. But we live our life carried along like by the flood of death. You remember the tsunami films? Everything's carried in the path. That's what death is for you and for me. It's a flood. It's a tsunami. Every one of us is on on our way to death. The minute we're conceived, we begin to die. You all know that, right? Right? You are going to die. I am going to die. The little baby in your womb is already dying. This does not escape God's attention. God turns men back to dust. All right? Now, remember I said it was general. You turn man back into dust. Now look at verse 7. It gets personal, doesn't it? Because it says, for we, for we have been consumed by your anger. Bible scholars think that this psalm was written at the time that Israel was given the punishment of wandering in the desert for 40 years. And that this was a prayer that Moses wrote for the people of God as they began to wander. Whatever it is, there is a judgment of God that they're facing. And he gets personal about the people of God here. Do you see this? Generally, God is the one that holds life and death. Specifically, we have been consumed by his anger. Now, at this point, many of us are sitting there going, oh, no, I'm seated in the heavenlies. All my sins are forgiven. God is not angry with me. And that's how you're taught today. You're taught not to have any corporate identity. You're taught to go on with the lies of scientism. And you're taught to deny that God is angry. But you know something? The Bible speaks of the wrath of God endlessly. Endlessly. Jesus 
is unbelievably intense about the wrath of God. This is why Jesus is the one who speaks of the eternal state of suffering God's wrath as the fire which is never quenched and the worm which never dies. Monty Python can make fun of it. Stick them in the hole, maggots go nibble, 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 which is a bit of a shock if you're not quite dead, right? It's no joke with Jesus. The fire is never quenched, the worm never dies. The Bible never speaks hyperbolically about the wrath of God. It's never trying to make a point and to scare you in a way that is disproportionate to the truth. If you go into hell right now and ask anybody suffering the eternal wrath of God, whether it's been understated or overstated to them in the pulpits they sat under their lives, every last one of them will tell that it has been understated. And so Moses here teaches the people of God to pray in this way. How? For we have been consumed by your anger. You think about your miscarriages and you think about the things you've suffered in your life. And I want you to connect it with the wrath of God. We. This is not true for pagans, but false for Christians. Christians confess the truth when we confess that our suffering is God's wrath. This is what's so awful about talking to parents about disciplining their children. Because on the one hand, you have parents who are out of control and beating their children. And then on the other hand, you have parents that think they should never be angry when they discipline their children. And those are the two choices you're supposed to have. Either you're an abuser or you have perfect equanimity in the face of your child's rebellion and disrespect. (laughs) Something in the middle. Because in the middle is where God exists. He loves us and he is angry at our disobedience. In the godly what? Fear and love embrace. In a good father, fear and love embrace. This is why you're fearful when you go in the room for the spanking and then you cling to him as soon as it's over. In the godly, fear and love embrace. This is to be... This is the way our relationship with God is supposed to be. We are supposed to be fearful of him and to love him at the same time. Now, I wondered whether or not I should tell you this. I'm going to tell you this. You know how it was real cold last week? Did you feel the cold? When you feel the cold, do you ever think that that is an infinite, tiniest, tiniest indication of the physical suffering of hell? Do you ever think about that? When God sends fire and the Arctic to you, so that your body suffers. Do you ever think of the suffering of hell? That's what I do. You know those hot days when you've just had it and you're going to die. You're dehydrated. You're on the ground panting. Do you ever think of hell? Or do you think Christians should never meditate on hell? And if they shouldn't, why did Jesus talk about it so much? Was it unhelpful and unintended to his disciples, but helpful and intended to everybody else? If so, why didn't he remove his disciples before he divulged that to those who were going to hell? Okay, you 12, go off there. I don't want you to hear this. Shut the door. Listen, when you feel the cold and when you suffer the heat, And when you're hungry, and when you're thirsty, it should cause you to meditate on the wrath of God. 
Everything in this life is given us to teach us about the character of God. If I were to tell you that when your mother loves you despite your rebellion, that this should teach you that God is long-suffering, that he longs to gather us under his wings as a hen, her chicks. Nobody's going to rebel against me telling you that. You know, what, what, a, what an inspiring sermon Pastor Bailey had. Oh, it was a so, so sweet just to be reminded how special mothers are. So what? Fire isn't helpful. Cold isn't helpful. Everything God's given us, everything in our lives, is a revelation of the character of God. Everything. That's why Edwards wrote a long treatise on spiders. And have you ever studied bees? What about gardens? I caught a man yesterday in Menards looking longingly, an old dude like me, looking longingly at a little packet of seeds. <laughs> For we... Not them. We have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And listen, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, and you hear that, your heart should say yes, and isn't it good? Isn't it good that my secret sins have come into the open? You know? How many, of you, how many of you know what I'm talking about? That finally, the hypocrisy and the moralism and the legalism and all that stuff can be done and you're just an ordinary sinner like everybody else in the church, eh? eh? But boy, some of you worked so hard to keep that from happening. And you're not fooling anybody. <laughs> we know you're a sinner, right? Your husband knows you're a sinner, Right? God is a God who is a good father, and God doesn't let us get away with anything. He knows the secrets of our hearts. He knows the lusts and the pride and the fears and the unbelief of our hearts. We don't hide anything from him. Nothing. Nothing. And that's either a blessing to you, and you take joy in it, or it's a horrifying thought. Christians, it's a blessing because we don't have any secrets from God. Isn't that wonderful, finally, to not have to be Alex Rodriguez? Can you imagine what a prison that man is in? And you just go on lying and lying and lying and lying. You imagine the prison that Lance Armstrong was in. And so it's a wonderful blessing when Scripture tells us that our secret sins are seen by God. You know that Jesus said that he didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. And you know, once you believe that, then every single Christian church you go into anywhere in the world, anywhere across time. You have brothers and sisters who love you and who require nothing out of you. Because they too know 
what a precious thing it is that God says he sees our secret sins. And he's wrathful against them. And boy, if, there, if that isn't family resemblance, I don't know what is. <laughs> the knowledge that God knows our secret sins and that he's angry at them. And that we don't feel that we have to deny that or we aren't a true Christian campus crusade way. Seated in the heavenlies. You know, a lot of evangelical theology has taught that if you fear God, you do not believe in God, you doubt him. A lot of evangelical theology has taught that that a true Christian is seated in the heavenlies emotionally and never cries and mourns over his sin. And that's just wicked. This is the prayer of Moses, the man of God, and he says, our. And it's obvious that he lives his life seeing his sin and the sin of God's people and having absolute confidence that that God is his father and that that God is angry at his sin. Do you understand that? You can't read this prayer and not know that this is what Moses believes. And so any version of Christianity that gets you to lie about how dirty you are, that, that gets you to show up at church and put a clean suit and a clean face on, that gets you to teach your children to live hypocritically among the people of God, denying what goes on in their home and heart is a false Christianity because it keeps you from confessing your sin and praying for one another that you may be healed. For we have been consumed, note the pronoun, we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath. We have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. It's so difficult to preach to this generation. Very difficult to preach to us. And the reason is that we have been taught by Billy Graham that we should never see the wrath of God in our suffering. AIDS is not judge's judgment. Uh, New Orleans is not God's judgment. 9-11 is not God's judgment. Earthquakes, tsunamis, death. It's not God's judgment. But you go back a couple centuries, even a century, and what you find is all Christians always see the hand of God in suffering and death. Always. Their God is not impotent. Their God is not subject to the laws of nature. Their God rules the laws of nature. So let me read you what Matthew Henry says here. He says, in this text, we are taught to acknowledge the wrath of God to be the cause of all our miseries. He says, we are consumed, we are troubled. It is by thy anger, thy wrath. Our days have passed away in thy wrath. The afflictions of the saints often come purely from God's love. But the rebukes of sinners and of good men for their sins must be seen coming from the anger of God, who takes note of, notice of and is much displeased with the sins of pagans. But that's not what he says. He says, who is much displeased and takes notice of the sins of Israel. The sins of Christians, the sins of the church. And then he says this, we are too apt to look upon death as no more than a debt owing to nature. 
Man, that is just everywhere today, that death is just a natural process. It's nothing to be afraid of. And he says back several centuries ago, we are too apt to look upon death as no more than a debt owing to nature. But it is not so. Death is a debt to the justice of God, to the law of God. Sin, the Bible tells us, entered into the world and death by sin. Are we consumed by decays of nature, the infirmities of age, or any chronic disease? And then he says this, we must ascribe it to God's anger. We must ascribe it to God's anger. Are we troubled by any sudden or surprising stroke? That also is the fruit of God's wrath, which is thus revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Listen, people, we don't begin to know God until we see that God is wrathful against your and my sins as Christians. And this is his love. You know, when God exposes us to ourselves and to others, this is not him being vindictive or flippant or or callous or cruel. This is him allowing us to live in the light of his presence. And that light is such that it pierces to the darkest spot in our hearts. How could he be God if he doesn't see everything? If he doesn't know what's in our hearts? Why would we worship him? And so in worship, we have the freedom of coming with the people of God and rejoicing that he sees everything, he knows everything, and he gives us the dignity of our moral agency. He says, you bear my image and therefore I'm wrathful against you because I made you to be holy and you have betrayed me and I will discipline you. And this is his love. And when we submit to it, when we embrace death by faith, when we as the loved ones left behind grab handfuls of dirt and throw it on the coffin without any anger or bitterness, Without any fear, we confess that God is God and that this too is just and right because Adam was our federal head and in Adam we all die. And then death ushers us as men and women of faith, into the presence of God where there is exceeding joy forevermore, where there is no more sickness, there is no more death, there is no more suffering, there is no more sin because we're in the presence of the Lord. Oh Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight. The, come on. Clouds be rolled back like a storm. The trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be faith. Even so, it is well with my soul. It is well. With my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? You see, they've been under his discipline. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? 
and be sorry for your servants. Take pity on us. Oh, satisfy us in the morning. Remember, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Now what is the work of your hands? What's the work of my hands? Is the work of my hands buying and selling Honda Civics? I've gotten off track. The world world is like that. It's unbelievable how seductive work is. And it can easily morph into an idol, can it? Can it? What's the work of your hands that God has called you to? What is it? God has called every single one of you to work. Do you know I was reading last night, you know one of the unique things about the United States of America around the world, you know what it is? You ask people in the United States of America who are mostly still Protestants, and you know what they say? They say, some 85% of them say, that they are fulfilled in their work. You know how many Germans are fulfilled? What percent of Germans? About 32%. Unbelievable commitment to and joy in work in the United States of America. It's one of the most unique things. Most unique. Anyhow. It's a unique thing. It's an unique thing. (laughs) About America. So what is the work of your hands that God has given you to? Oh, don't tell me that you really were called to be a missionary and now you've wasted the rest of your life because of a mistake you made when you were 25. Don't tell me you were called to be a minister but your wife wouldn't let you. Don't tell me that you have grand visions but you just don't have the capital to pull them off. (laughs) God has given you work. He has called you to work, and you're to do it, aren't you? And then, giving yourself to your work, you are to do what? You are to pray and ask God to establish the work of your hands. One of the things I hate about living in a university community is there's no humility about our work, whereas you go into farmland and there's incredible humility. And the reason is an academic can just find another academic who's a friend and they can write a paper together or they can be friends with the review you know, of the journal, whoever's going to see their article and say, give it thumbs up or thumbs down. And it's this like closed circle. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And a farmer goes outside and he looks up. And if it rains and his hay has been cut, you see? But if it stays dry and and the hay dries out, you see? And so day by day by day by day, the farmer is taught to pray to God to establish the work of his hands. Can you imagine an academic praying, asking God to establish the work of his hands? We have some that do. And so whatever the work is that God has called you to, At the beginning of this new year, realize that it is a call from God you've been given, but that without the Lord building the house, they labor in vain who build it. And so ask God to give you ideas. Ask God to give you patience with your children. Ask God to give you sales. Eh? Sales, eh? It's good. It's good work. Ask God to establish the work of your hands. Huh? If your work is to pray and to wait, pray and wait, and ask God to help you to pray and wait. 
okay? I love you. I love you as a congregation. And if you think that's manipulative, I, I pity you. God knows your sin, and God is wrathful, and God is loving and kind and merciful. And so let's continue our worship of him with the band leading us in musical worship.